All right, good morning, everyone. A blessed Reformation to all of you. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, to catch you back up to speed, we have been on the topic of eternal life, especially looking toward that intermediate state. Um, that is, that is uh, ooh, I just remembered something. Speaking of intermediate states, um, I forgot to make an, an important announcement that I was asked to make. And that is to make you all aware that uh, Pastor uh, Brian Wolfmuller, some of you know that name, and many of you from our Thursday morning class were actually studying a text that he's written. I know Pastor Wolfmuller, we've spoken at some conferences together, we've um, gotten to know each other just a little bit over the years. And he is leading a tour to uh, Oberammergau, did I pronounce that correctly? Correct. Yeah, next July for the Passion Play. If I'm not mistaken, it's July 8th through the 21st. So that's 2022. And if you have any interest in going, kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity, although it does happen more than that, but you never know. And especially um, a blessing to go with someone like Pastor Wolfmuller, who's not only so knowledgeable, but um, he leads devotions along the way. He makes spiritual connections at the different places in which you'll, you'll tour and go. Um, so I want to make you aware of this opportunity. Now, time to sign up is pretty much now, right? So if, if you do want to sign up, if you want more information, um, Radford and Anita Rosebro, would you wave a, wave a hand? The Rosebros will get you um, connected with, with that, um, with Wolf Mueller and that organization and get you all set up with uh, travel. Is it all, is it pretty much all, I mean, they're not going to pay your German beer probably, but um, <laughs> but in terms of uh, it, it's uh, the the cost cover room and um, and do they cover travel, room and travel and then food you're on your own is that mm -hmm. okay first rate hotels he said for those of you who couldn't hear all right so I'm sorry I meant to uh, make that advertisement a, a little earlier, but I'm glad I recalled anyway. So again, great opportunity. Please talk with the Rosebros if you have interest. Now, in the preceding weeks, we doing okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot the mic. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. feel like I have the Secret Service running around. <laughs> okay. So we've been, we've been talking, you know, we launched off on John Gerhard, this desire for eternal life and how important that is for us. Um, I've, I've kind of preached it in this dorky way, but it's good for us to have our head in the clouds. It's good for us to have our head in the clouds. You know, all, all growing up, our parents say, get your head out of the clouds. Get your head in the clouds. Um, have your minds set on heaven. Have your minds set on that goal which is to come and is really deceptively close because all it takes is a heart attack, an aneurysm. I mean, I don't want to be too morbid here, but all it takes is a split second and you're there. So in a sense, the permanence of this life is what's illusory. And that, that can have such a sobering effect on our perception as we live here in life on a day-by-day -day basis, even on a macro level as we look at the big picture of our life, just to focus on the impermanence of, this, of these present circumstances. And that permanence is rather uh, joy and delight with the Lord in heaven. That's the intermediate state we're looking forward to. Now, what's the final state? Again, by way of hopefully jogging your memory, that's the Lord returns, we're raised in our bodies, incorruptible, spiritual, and yet truly our bodies, and we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end. That's really where we spend eternity, as it were, a an endless succession unto the ages of ages, okay, in our bodies, in the new heavens and the new earth, living a truly blessed life as sons and daughters of light. 
All right, so in the meantime, when we die, but we're waiting the resurrection of all flesh, what's happening there? The Bible actually has surprisingly small data, because you would think if you just sort of were surveying American Christianity, you would think that the Bible was jam-packed with information about dying and going to heaven, and then maybe just a tiny little bit of information about the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. Rather, the biblical data is completely flip-flopped. Biblical data for the intermediate state is quite slim. Biblical data for the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth, quite dominant. So that is the dominant theme. But we're going to take a look then, continue to take a look at this intermediate state. And in order to do so, we've been laying a very important foundation, primarily in the Gospel of John. And that is factoring in, at its most deep essence, what life is. And very simply, life is Jesus. Yeah, now you can articulate that in all different kinds of ways, but, but Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Life is Jesus. So to that end, um, let's open up to John chapter 11. And I won't have us read the whole section. Again, um, just to recap where we've been in John, we have seen that Jesus describes the Father as the living Father, and that the Son has life from the Father, and then the Spirit comes to give us life, and the way, the mode, the means in which the Spirit gives us life, it's obviously through the Word, okay, to borrow from Paul, faith comes by, by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, but in John's Gospel it's even more specific to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man is to have life. So what we see in John's Gospel from John 6 forward, and we see of course traces of this even previously, but from John 6 forward we see this really foundational idea that we don't actually have life apart from the triune God and apart from the body and blood of Jesus. Now, why the body and blood of Jesus? Why are we taking this thing like Holy Communion? Isn't that kind of peripheral? And why are we taking that and sitting at the center? Well, because it's not peripheral at all. It is the center. That is the cup of his blood that Jesus says, this is the New Testament. You see, so to have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the center with the body and blood of Jesus, center, and to have these be the source of life, you can see how that makes perfect sense. If the cup of Jesus, his blood shed once and for all on the cross, poured out into the chalice for us, if that is the new covenant, then that is the way in which we come to life. And life is receiving life from the one who is life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make sense? Now, if that's the essence of life, you have eternal life right now. You have life right now. And so that's where we as Christians, you know, we don't need to get dragged down by the bummers of this life. We don't need to get dragged down by the fact that, you know, you stand in front of the mirror and you go, whew, <laughs> I'm half the man I used to be. <laughs> I don't like what I see here. Uh, you, you don't, though the, though the outer man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day because our life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. And this is the source of life. So everything else, I mean, the husk can turn brown and dry, and ultimately the husk can even fall away. Our bodies can decay and even fall away, and we still have life. All right, so here's the perfect text to, to show that from John's Gospel. Now, in John chapter 11, that's where we are, we're looking at the death of Lazarus. And my intent here isn't to read line by line. We may end up doing that anyway. But my intent is to just kind of hit the high points with you. Again, continuing with the theme that we're exploring today. Okay, obviously chapter 11 verse 1 begins with the illness of Lazarus. And the sisters come to Jesus and say, the one who you love is ill. 
When Jesus heard it, he said, and this is verse 4, first red letters in this chapter, this illness does not lead to death. Isn't that fantastic? Now, of course, okay, think in, think in, two, different, think in two different layers here. Layer one, the event itself. Does Jesus know that Lazarus is going to die? Absolutely. He knows the thoughts and intents of men all the way along. He knows things that can't possibly be known um, all throughout John's gospel because he is the Word made flesh. He's the divine Son of God. All right? So does he know at this moment that Lazarus, his friend, is going to die? Yes. But look what he says. This illness does not lead to death. He's going to be redefining life and death for us throughout this episode. Now, the second level would be, think of John, as he's sitting decades after this event, and he's reflecting on this event, and he's going to pen this story. And think of the boldness with which John pens this, knowing full well that Lazarus is in fact going to die, knowing that full well that, well, this might give the appearance that Jesus was an error. No. John absolutely gets it, doubles down as it were, and simply has, records our Lord's words precisely as he said them. This illness does not lead to death. There's a glorious kind of nakedness and boldness in this, in this type of text. There's no pulling punches. Right off the bat, Jesus and then John following him and penning his gospel this way, they're going to say just right up front, we fallen human beings don't understand death and life properly. Listen and learn from the Lord. Okay, Jesus continues, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, okay? through this illness that does not lead to death. Okay, now I'm just going to point out this next detail from verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, there, there's possibly a sense here in which, um, okay, well, it took him time to get things together to travel, but on the other hand, this isn't exactly urgent, isn't it? It's just, I'm going to wait two full days. What I have always taken this text to be, especially because Jesus says this illness doesn't lead to death, and he knows Lazarus is going to die, so he's going to redefine death and life for us, but then Jesus waits two days. He's not going to be bossed around by death. There's nothing that death can do that he can't undo. This is such a beautiful thing with the Lord and something we all have to learn from him. With the Lord, there really is no urgency. I mean, maybe the only urgency you could really articulate is the urgency for us to repent. For today is the day of salvation. But what urgency is there with the Lord? He can do whatever he wants. He can reverse death. He could end the devil's reign like that. So why doesn't he? It fits his good purposes. And so that ought to give us great confidence too as we, as we zoom back up to kind of a 40,000 foot view and we look at the great comfort, the great sobering effect that realizing that this life can simply just fall away and not, nothing fundamental changes, that this life is in fact temporary and transient, we can add to that this thought, that everything that's happening here is only happening because the Lord wills it and allows it. Will he use it for his good purposes? I don't know. Is he capable of it? Yeah, he's capable. Will he? I don't know, will he who laid down his own life for you on the cross not also give you all things? Will he not work these things? But can I trust him? All, my reason, my senses, and Fox and CNN, they all tell me it's not going that way. Well, do you trust that he's greater than even these? So there's a great, a great call to ah, true comfort and true joy that in the midst of such tumultuous things, we simply say, God, I know you're capable, 
and I know all things are in your hands, and I trust you more than I trust myself, and I know you'll work all things for good. And I know that not everything that appears one way is, in fact, that way. So a great call to faith here. All right, then finally Jesus says, let's go. And then skipping along, skipping along. Um, verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Because <laughs> Jesus has just said, I go to waken Lazarus. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. One more example of how Jesus is speaking in a way that's alien to his disciples and alien to our way of thinking. All right, verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. All right, verse 21, Martha calls him out. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What's interesting about this fact? Martha's a Hebrew. What is the Hebrew faith? The Hebrew faith is simply the resurrection of the body on the last day. I mean, this is before the resurrection of Jesus. This is before Paul comes along and spells everything out about our resurrection. What is the Hebrew faith based on the Old Testament scriptures? The resurrection of the body on the last day. Really important to view this because, again, History Channel and you know, YouTube and so many other experts tell us that Christianity is born with the resurrection of Jesus or born with that claim. Christianity is born with Christ. Christianity is born with St. Paul, born with St. Paul's definition of what Christianity is. And all of this is nonsense because what we see even in a text so simple as this is Martha, long before any of this happens, long before anything is known, already believes in one of the core tenets of the Christian faith, the resurrection of the body. This is simply a in continuity with the Hebrew faith. That's why Jesus and St. Paul, by the way, all, almost always make their arguments on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. It's in continuity with. The Hebrew faith is the Christian faith. All right. Then uh, verse 24. Of course, Martha has said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And here's the key. I am the resurrection and the life. Okay? So our, it's not so much an event. And this is really key to, to, um, as this really key to John's gospel. It's not so much an event. It's not so much a place. It is a person. I am the resurrection. I am the life. All right, he continues, whoever believes in me. Now, does it say whoever believes in me and, and does the best that he can? Whoever believes in me and is mostly obedient. Whoever believes in me and therefore merits my grace. No. Where does Jesus teach faith alone? Where does Jesus teach the heart of the Reformation? Everywhere. I challenge you to find me a place where he doesn't. Okay? Look at this. Whoever believes in me, full stop. Whoever believes in me with faith working itself out in love. No. Whoever believes in me, full stop. It's just faith alone. That's all it is. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now what would that be? That'd be resurrection. That's the description of the first statement that Jesus has made. I am the resurrection. Okay, therefore, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, what about Jesus being the life? Verse 26. And everyone who lives. Now, cross out believes for a minute. 
everyone who lives in me shall never die. Okay, now add in, add in believes, and you'll see, you'll see what I'm doing grammatically here. Believes is, our, is articulated by our Lord because of the necessity of faith to receive this gift. But what is the essence of life? To live in the one who is life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now again, take our Lord's words at face value and see how confusing they are. This entire section is great because it's utterly baffling to the fallen nature. This, sin, this sinlessness, or excuse me, this illness, <laughs> little dyslexic moment there, this illness does not lead to death. Wait, he dies. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. <laughs> though he die, shall never die. Which is it? Yes. Gloriously, yes. Okay? Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die means precisely this. Even though the body goes into the ground, though he die, there is a resurrection, yet shall he live. And yet whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That means that as we pass through death, death has so been destroyed by the death of Christ that it's no longer death at all. That's the mystery hiding here. Okay? Think about it in these terms. When you die, what goes into the ground? Your fallen body, along with all the fleshly, sinful desire and sins. Is that you? That's not you. If that were you, then that would have to exist forever in order for that to be you. But the fact that that perishes and yet you do not means that that is, in fact, not you. Now, Paul articulates this, of course, in precisely these terms. Okay. If you agree with the law that it is good, that it is right, then that sin which is in you is no longer you. It is no longer you who sin but sin that dwells within your members, which you would gladly be rid of. So guess what death is? Death is the final purgative. Death is the final circumcision, the cutting off of the sinful flesh. And we pass through death unscathed. And if you pass through death unscathed, in which sense is it death? It's not death. So, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So here Jesus then refers to what we would call the intermediate state. We're before the resurrection of our flesh, and yet we're recognizing that death has already, in its essence, been taken away. The heart of death has been taken away because we have now the one who is life. So this, um, this goes back to Genesis. Remember where we, where we looked at this? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did Adam and Eve immediately keel over physically? No. Did they die spiritually? Yes. Dead in their trespasses and sins. What does it mean to come back alive? To be resurrected from being dead in your trespasses and sins. It means to be made alive in Christ Jesus, the one who is life. So spiritual death or spiritual life is actually the core. From spiritual death, bodily death comes. But from spiritual life, bodily life comes. And so the spiritual death precedes the temporal death. And so also the spiritual resurrection precedes the physical resurrection. But the fact that you are spiritually raised even now means that you will never die. You proper. Okay, what does that mean? You will be more you the second you step through the threshold of death, unscathed, without dying, completely alive. You will be more you than ever before. 
because you'll be free of all that which is not you. All that which God did not originally make, but which sin has corrupted and tainted, all of that has been burned off. A very common analogy for this in the scriptures is um, the dross. You know, you take, you take um, gold or precious metal and it's got all of these contaminants and un- invalu- or, or not, uh, not valuable kind of junk attached to it. You pass it through the fire and all of that burns away and you're left with pure refined gold. Death is that final act of refining us, burning off all that which remains so that all that you have then is the pure gold. Okay, so this gets to the question of like, like already when you enter, when you enter into the intermediate state, when you enter paradise with our Lord, you're a completely different you. You're a brand new you. There's perfect continuity and yet all the sinful aspects of you have fallen away. You now find yourself perfectly aligned with, with God in thought, word, and deed. What does that mean for your ability to recognize other people in the intermediate state? They're going to be more themselves than ever before. They're not going to be entirely different in such a way that you're going to walk up and say, who are you? I don't know who you are. Rather, you're going to say, I somehow know you better than I ever knew you before. Because what was, what was our relationship before? Two children of God wrapped up in a whole bunch of fleshly garbage and rot and corruption. And how well could we know each other through these two filters? Those filters are now removed. We finally see each other as we are. We know each other even as we are known by the Lord. This is the beauty and, and why, you know, I think, I think even you glimpse this in something like the Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah come down on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord, and Jesus doesn't have to say to his disciples, Peter, James, and John, now let me introduce you. Let me, uh, let me connect you. you. You should probably know that this is, uh, this is Moses and this is Elijah. Uh, they simply know. They simply know. And that's a foretaste. I, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be in paradise um, with the Lord and say, um, Boy, I, I wonder where King David is. Or I wonder where Mary is. And how would I ever recognize them? And how would I ever know them? In, in almost all certainty, you already will simply see them and know. So we become more ourselves than ever before. And what that means is we begin to see and perceive things objectively, as our Lord does. And that, we're going to get to that in a moment with Paul. There's clear texts that demonstrate and prove this. But part of what that means to be truly alive, to be truly ourselves, and to have our neighbors be truly alive, and to be truly themselves, is we are going to all know even as we are known. All right. So here, once more, just before we move on from this text, of course, um, Jesus has made this teaching, whoever, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Okay, well, let's simply cut to the chase here because we want to finish this story out, even though um, it might not have any direct bearing on what we've been talking about. Um, Where have you laid him? Jesus says in verse 34. Then, of course, Jesus comes to the tomb in verse 38. Jesus tells them to take away the stone. Martha, ever the practical one, says he's been dead for four days. There's going to be a smell. Jesus kindly rebukes her. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they did as he said. Jesus, lifting up his eyes, said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. What's going on here? This goes back to John 6. Jesus wants the people, wants us to understand that while life comes to us through him, 
that life originates with the Father. The Father gives life to the Son who gives life to us. And that's in view here. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus acknowledging that the life that he's going to give to Lazarus comes from the Father. All right, verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The old joke is if he had not said Lazarus, if he had not specified, everyone would have come out. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Lazarus comes hopping out with his hands and his feet bound with the linen strips. I guess this is apropos of Halloween. He comes out like a mummy, hopping around, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Oh, beautiful, beautiful statement here um, of, of Jesus being life. So now we recount then what is, what is death. To Jesus, it's only sleep. It can be reversed. But even then, we're really only talking about the death of the body. We're really only talking about death and life in a secondary sense. Because in the primary sense, to live in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is to be free from death. You shall never die. And that's the primary sense. Okay? Any questions on that? Any thoughts on that? Otherwise, we'll plan to move to one other text in, in John and then um, fly into some of the synoptics, Paul, that kind of thing, and hit some of the, some of the text you might be more familiar with. All good? Okay, I see a hand back there. We're going to know those that are in heaven. Mm. What um, are we going to know the loved ones that are not there? Are we going to know they're not there? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. It's a great question. C.S. Lewis. Um, takes a certain angle on this. And I don't think it's exclusive of the other angle, which I'll take it here in just a moment. But C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Okay. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, and I'm trying to kind of bring you into the conversation. It's, it's somewhat accurate to view this, this present life, this present world, as about half heaven and about half hell. You glimpse things that are like, Paradise-esque. We glimpse these things in a sunrise and a sunset and the love we have for our children, the love they show us, uh, any number of ways. But then we also see things that are so hideous and so corrupt it's unimaginable. And you think to yourself, I, if hell is any worse, I couldn't, I couldn't think of how. The truth is we experience and see both things. We spend most of our time trying to hide ourselves from the bad things. Um, but the truth is, if we just are open-eyed, we see heaven and hell mesh together here. What would, this, what would this life be like if you started just stripping away one grace of God after another? <laughs> how, how quickly would it go to hell? Almost instantly. What if you stripped all the sin and death? It'd go to heaven almost instantly. Okay, so the same is true for us as creatures dwelling here. Within, within you as a saint of God, within a baptized child of God, within you is heaven. The kingdom of heaven is within you, Jesus says. But also within you is the old Adam and all that he's capable of, which frankly is hell. Now imagine if within, within a single person you stripped all the heaven out of them, all the graces out of them. What do you have left? Do you really even have someone you recognize? This is St. Paul's point. Or St. Paul. <laughs> Sorry. Need another sip of coffee. C.S. Lewis point. C.S. Lewis point is the one you loved here in this life doesn't properly exist anymore. Every part of them that you loved, every part of them that you cherished was already a grace of God, was already a goodness of God. That's all been lost. That's all been rejected. That's all been removed. The person you knew properly doesn't exist anymore. I think that's valid. 
I think that's right. I also think that that's one side of the coin. And I don't think C.S. Lewis would disagree with me on this. What is the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin is less oriented toward the fallen and lost loved one and is more oriented toward God when we set our heart and mind on God and on his goodness. What would we see? We would see that God has greater claim on that person than we do. God is a father to my children far more than I'm ever a father to my children. I'm a temporary father. I'm a, an earthly father. I'm an image of his fatherly care. How much do I love my children? Or my spouse? Or my friends? Or family? Or whoever I can imagine? How much do I love them? Not a fraction of as much as God loves them. So who knows better about that relationship? God or me? God. Do I trust God? Or do I trust myself? I trust God. I trust him more than I trust myself. Okay. Do I see that he is good? Unimaginably good. Better than me? Unimaginably better than me. At that point in time, will I see that he is just? Absolutely so. In fact, beyond just. Gracious and merciful in such a way that he trumps every last human judgment. And there won't be a single human being that's able to say, well, God, you are unjust in this way. You are uh, imperfect in this way. No, all that's cleared up. So then, then there's really no one left to blame but that individual. And already there's a kind of repulsion. I know I feel it too, um, even now. It's this kind of repulsion of like, well, if you don't, if you don't love God, what, what fellowship do we have? I mean, what are we going to agree upon? You like chicken nuggets too? <laughs> You're also a Republican? I mean, what, what are we, like, what's our fellowship based upon? Like, you, you despise God in such a way that you've rejected all his graces, all his mercy, all his character. You've rejected the sacrifice of his son. You've rejected his blood. You've rejected the Holy Spirit. You've rejected untold people telling you about this over and over. You've rejected and despised it all. You've desired to dwell in darkness, and now you do. And forgive me if I just can't really even raise a tear right now in my fallen state, much less so when I'm glorified and, per and see things perfectly clearly and I'm completely aligned with God and, and have no ulterior selfish motives. But even now, it's, just, it's, Saint, it's an articulation of what St. Paul says. What fellowship does light have with darkness? And when you realize that someone has consciously, willfully decided, I am a son of darkness, well, what loyalties of the flesh do I have with you? What loyalties on the basis of life or sentiment do I have with you? I'm one with my father. I, I just, I can't even fathom it. What, on what level would we connect? We had some good times, but you don't give thanks to God for those good times. We experience some of his graces and mercies together, but you despise him and you despise his grace and mercies. I, I, why would you... So I think, I think oriented toward God and toward the profound goodness, what would you, tr what would you trade in? I mean, you wouldn't possibly trade in. About all that, about all that remains is just this realization of St. Paul's. Uh, would, I, I would gladly go to hell that my countrymen could go to heaven with the Lord. I would gladly go to hell than, than have anyone I know be lost forever and not join in the fellowship of light in the Lord. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I get that sentiment. I'm not sure I'm holy enough to pray it. <laughs> but, you know, not many of us are St. Paul. Okay, but that's, that, that's about the extent of the sentiment you can have. This is also why in Revelation, when God's final judgment comes and the wicked are being swept away, there's not really tears being shed by the saints. The saints are like, yeah. Yeah, it's time. And yeah, you, had, you didn't only have your chance. You had chance after chance after chance. 
And anything, anything beyond that, too, you have to start to understand the implications of this. Is any part of you that could imagine like being in heaven and like, oh, I wish so-and-so were here. But they're not. Why aren't they? God, however God in his majesty worked that out, it, so would you sit in judgment of God? And that's really where all of this drives. Really all of this drives is, is the accusation is, okay, so um, when we start to get around the question of like, why are some saved and not others? Why do you want to know? I've wrestled with this question for decades of my life. Why do you want to know? That's the appropriate follow-up question. What would you do with that information? Now I can give you, I can give you the, the kind of Sunday school appropriate answer. But an astonishing thing is when Jesus is asked this line of question, are there many who will be saved or few? Why some, not others? Why these and not those? Jesus never gives the Sunday school answer, interestingly. Jesus says, repent. What's Jesus see there that we don't? I think it's this. What would you do with that information if you had it? What are you doing right now? What's your, what's your spiritual position and posture right now? Judgment. Judgment over who? Judgment over God. Is he just? Is he fair? Is he merciful? That posture in and of itself deserves one word, and that's the word of our Lord. Repent. So a lot of this stuff we contrive, you know, what, it, what about the noble Bushman who lived, okay, well, let's stop there. There's no noble Bushman who lives anywhere, okay? Um, what about the noble pagan who have no fault of his, there's no such thing as a noble pagan, okay, in the first place. In the second place, do you not think that God will handle them justly? Or do you think that God is unjust and you are just? So what's the point of the question again? You see, all of these questions we ask, really amount to a desire to judge if God is good or not, according to whose definition? My own. My own. Well, if that isn't sitting in the throne of hell, I don't know what is. All the people in hell think exactly this way. I've judged God and found him wanting. I've judged God and want nothing to do with him. It's partially why the, at the close of the age we'll have a vindication of God. Not that God needs it. It's just going to be self-evident. It's just when his justice flourishes, like, okay, all the ways in which you thought I was unjust, well, you've been looking at half the equation and judging me accordingly. Now is when the scales get balanced. Now is when the secrets, good and bad, are revealed. And there's not going to be a single soul in all of the cosmos who's able to lay an accusation at the feet of God in that day. It'll be laughable. Not only was he just, but he was merciful beyond comprehension. So there, there's a very long-winded answer. Um, you can take it kind of C.S. Lewis way of like, well, the person I knew and loved is gone. They've totally been consumed by their evil side. Or you can think of it more in terms of, with my eyes on God, I trust him so entirely and completely that if that's the way it is, then, then it's good. How could it be other? Yeah, please. I think the question tends to be an emotional question because we're in our sinful state. And so we look at it from an emotional point of view. And when we get wrapped up in our emotions, we know where that leads us. Mm -hmm. But I think that when, you know, God says that we'll be changed in a moment, mm -hmm. you know, and in that moment that we are changed, that also includes our emotions. Yeah. So we see things differently. We understand things differently. And we are humbled. We lay our crowns, right, mm -hmm. before the throne. And we, we understand what God has done. And God has also promised to wipe away our tears. You know, whatever, whatever sorrow we feel at, at whatever moment, mm -hmm. you know, you've talked about that before, he's there to heal. Mm -hmm. So our emotions are healed and all of us is healed and we yeah. have a different understanding of that. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think, okay, so what are we looking at at root if you'd say, well, I'm not sure I want to be in heaven if this person isn't in heaven. Okay. Here I am. Here's God in heaven. Here's my loved one. You can picture whoever you might struggle most with in that category. Okay. 
I'm not, I'm not sure that I want to go to heaven if my loved one isn't in heaven. I might rather be with my loved one. Well, who's your God? Who do you love more? I mean, so, so there, we can think of this in all number of different ways. And um, I, think the, uh, I think the emotions tend to be an outcropping and a symptom of one's, uh, of one's attitudes, one's spiritual attitudes, I mean, in regard to this particular question. Um, you know, I think, like, it gets, because it gets down to identity. My kids are my kids in a fleshly sense. My wife is my wife in a fleshly sense. Are we fleshly beings? Are we earthly beings, right? So um, I think already, even now in our fallen state, we can grasp these things. How much more than, to your point, Connie, um, when we're changed and when we don't feel the fallen emotions and those kinds of things. Yeah, but it's a very good question and obviously a, a challenging one. And I'm not convinced, um, I'm not convinced that um, we probably ought to do anything more than our Lord Jesus on this point, really, which is when we ask such questions to tell ourselves, repent. <laughs> Let God be God. Let him be in control. Your answer here uh, really puts into perspective the uh, marriage issue of being unequally yoked or what I've heard people say that during their dating, they dating evangelism, well, he's an unbeliever or she's an unbeliever, but they will come to know the Lord. And that's very dangerous mm-hmm. because they're being drawn to these, this goodness of an unbeliever, which is, a, is God's grace yeah. temporarily that goes away in eternity. So uh, that was very helpful and uh, to understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that, Barry. Again, I, you know, a governing principle here, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And the closer, I think, in a sense, the closer we are to the light, the less we're going to have time or patience for the darkness, the less we're going to see any fellowship with the darkness what, whatsoever. I mean, again, on what level are we connecting here? Uh, okay. Yeah, Pastor, yes, real quick. Please. Back to uh, what we were just discussing before Barry's brilliant question. Uh, isn't, the, isn't the decision Adam made in the garden similar to uh, what you were talking about? In other words, he chose Eve uh, when that time came. Do I eat of the apple, which he knew was wrong, and die with my wife, or do I not eat of it and let the consequences um, fall on her. That's a great point, Bob. Yeah, and that, that sounds exactly like an argument any number of church fathers would make. Again, based on that line from St. Paul that uh, really disavows us of, of several illusions in regard to that text, um, that St. Paul was not deceived. The woman was deceived, but the man was not deceived. So, and, and God even cites this in his accusation as he goes down the line. You recall the serpent, the woman, the man. Um, but the sin of the man is that he listened to the voice of his wife. He listened to the voice of the woman rather than listening to the voice of God. And so in that moment, he selected a different God. Um, Eve was deceived into accepting the serpent as her God rather than God as her God. The man was not deceived and chose to have the woman as his God rather than God as his God. And so, yeah, in that sense, Bob, then it makes perfect sense. He, he valued something higher than, than God, namely the affections of his wife and the person of his wife. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like, what are you going to withhold from God? Job, Job here factors in too. You know, Job has everything, happy home life, happy wife, happy children, happy everything. And piece by piece in a day, it's all stripped away. Finally, even his wife says, curse God and die. And, you know, Job, Job, I mean, he's not like, okay, well, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back, God. You know, you've taken everything from me, or I could bear everything but not this one thing. No, I mean, the true, the true test of faithfulness, it's really, it's not even a test of faithfulness. It's really a sense of ontology. Are you God's child or not? What goes deeper than that? 
And if anything is, if anything is more shallow or superficial, then it's taken away without effect to the, onto, uh, to the ontology that you are God's child. He is your father. Everything else, give it time to sort itself out. Any doubts you might have about him, put them away um, because he is who he is. And who are we to judge and question God anyway? And that's really how the book of Job ends, isn't it? He rebukes the friends who give all the correct Sunday school answers. He says, you all were right in the worst possible way, such a way that you were wrong. And uh, Job, even though you spoke wrongly, you were right because you didn't cop out to one of the Sunday school answers, but you continued to cling to me. And then the revelation of God is, is first and foremost, were you there when, when the angels sang for joy as I laid the heavens and the earth? Were you there? No, you weren't there. Okay. So clearly, I am God, you're not. And then as that fleshes itself out, even then, God doesn't give Job the answer to this conundrum or the reason for... I mean, it's not in such a sense that Job is like, ah, well, that was it the whole time. Um, now I see. No, at the, end, at the end, God simply says, this is who I am. Whatever claims you might think you have in this regard against me, you don't have. And on account of your faithfulness, I'd rather give myself to you. I am the Lord your God. You know, this is, this is such a profound point. We miss it all the time because we look at the Ten Commandments and we think of them as just pure law. The basis of the Ten Commandments, the opening words are, I am the Lord your God. I mean, that's a, claim, that's a gospel claim. That's a claim of perfect identity. I am the Lord your God. I am your Father. Um, and so Job doesn't get the answers to these questions, but rather he receives God himself in such a way that then, all right, well, whether the, Lord, whether the Lord gives or takes, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's really the proper Christian attitude at its, at its heart, so that we don't behold God, you know, we don't hold God um, or withhold from God anything. That's really rather the point. All right, I see that we are um, out of time. So I will uh, loiter up here for a few minutes if there were any residual questions. Happy to continue talking with you about these things. Next week, we'll look at the thief on the cross. And maybe the one, he always gets brought up to prove all kinds of nonsensical things that it doesn't prove. Uh, maybe we'll bring up the one thing that it does prove. All right, the Lord be with you. Also with you.